we can rest today in the truth that God's ways are higher than our ways and they're moral, they're good, even when we don't understand it. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. You're listening to Trust, a series preached through the book of Habakkuk. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Someone said happiness is sitting next to someone who knows where Habakkuk is in their Bible. (laughs) Well, this morning we begin a new five-week series through one of the shortest books in the Old Testament. Uh, It's the minor prophet we know as Habakkuk. But the message within this prophecy is anything but minor. In fact, it's one of the more important uh, impacting messages that, that every single one of us needs to grapple with. In fact, the name Habakkuk actually means a few different things, and one of the the meanings of his name is to wrestle. Uh, He's one of the only prophets who does not just speak for God, but actually speaks to God. And he has three questions for God as we open up this new book in this new series. And I want you to jot these down or take a picture of the screen. Uh, Habakkuk asks these questions, but he's asking them to God directly. Number one, does God care? Do you care, God? Number two, is God fair? And number three, is God even there? Have you ever asked any or all of those questions? Lord, how long? I'm a person of prayer, and yet uh, the people in power are corrupt. And I look around culture, and it just seems like injustice abounds. Uh, Lord, how long? How long, Lord? Our nation is wicked and sinful, and people around me are in complete bondage and darkness, and they have no fear for you. Aren't you paying attention to the plight that I'm personally in? Lord, how long? Lord, why are you allowing the church to be in the state that it's in? There's false teachers that abound. Why, Lord, why would you allow this? Why is your church so riddled with problems and you don't seem to be doing anything about it? Lord, don't you care? Or maybe you've asked something like, Lord, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this trial. I mean, maybe that guy over there, he deserves it, but see, you're blessing him, and everything that he does turns to gold, and here I am struggling to follow you, and it seems like I can't get a break. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and Lord, it's just not fair. Or maybe you've thought, God, are you even real? I don't hear your voice. I've tried to seek you, and I've tried to to follow you, but I don't see you working. I'm really struggling with even believing that you exist. Uh, This pain, this weight is crushing me. And if you were real, I would imagine, I would surmise that you would see my scenario and you would do something to help me. But it doesn't seem like you're there. Lord, are you even there? You see, these are real questions that many of us, if not all of us, have asked at one point in our faith journey. And thankfully, a prophet who lived most likely during the reign of King Josiah asked God these questions and God answered him. Uh, Here at Shoreline, we believe in equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, So our Sunday morning gatherings are designed in a specific way to equip believers. To that end, we believe in studying the full counsel of God, all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And so how we do that is we preach expository sermons verse by verse. What does that mean? It means that we let the text speak for itself. We expose the text and its meaning, and then we then gain our understanding of life based on the text, based on the scripture. 
Uh, it's not just a verse here or a verse there out of context. We actually want to learn the Bible, not just truths from the Bible, okay? So whenever we open a new book study at Shoreline, we like to ask before we dive in the big five. The big five. These are the big five questions that we like to ask. And so I'd like you to jot these down so that we can kind of look through the big five as we begin this new uh, book study. So look at Habakkuk 1, verse 1. He says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. We're going to do the big five. And the big five are who, when, where, what, and why. So let's start with the who. He says in verse 1 his name. And we don't know much about this actual man, except, of course, that his name is hard to pronounce. Uh, he is one of the few prophets who actually calls himself a prophet. In the spirit of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, he calls himself in chapter 1, verse 1 that we just read, and also verse 1 of chapter 3. Many scholars believe that because there are so many references to musical instruments in chapter 3, they believe that maybe Habakkuk was a Levite who worked in the temple and his job was prophesying and leading music. We don't know that for sure. It's not explicit in the text, but it's a possibility. Uh, but I mentioned earlier his name means to wrestle, but it can also mean to embrace. What we're going to see is the book of Habakkuk opening with a perplexed attitude of worry. But by the end of the book, we're going to see that worry transform into worship. We're going to see him begin with a wrestling with God. And yet by the end, he's going to be embracing the truth about God. Uh, we call this progression trust. And that's the theme of this series, trust. Now, that's the who. What about the when? When did Habakkuk write his prophecy? A little bit of history here. It's really hard to discern exactly when he wrote it because he doesn't mention any kings by name. Most prophets would mention the king uh, that was reigning during their prophecy, so we can kind of get an idea. Uh, but he doesn't mention any kings, so we have to speculate a little bit. Um, but chapter 1, verse 6, if you look at it with me, uh, there's a group of people named, and the name is the Chaldeans. Don't say Chaldeans, all right? The Chaldeans, uh, a.k.a. the Babylonians. Now, we know from history that in 625, the Babylonian Empire was expanding quickly, and then in 605 B.C., about 20 short years later, a world-changing moment in history took place. A big shift in history took place. Remember, it was 625, then 605. We're counting down in B.C., um, and then we count up. They weren't doing that then, but we do that now. So uh, that was the year, 605 B.C., that King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, defeated the Egyptian empire at the battle called Carchemish. The Battle of Carchemish was a huge turning point because Assyria, the known empire that was leading the world at that time, and, and Egypt allied together to wipe off the planet this little annoying empire, the Babylonian Empire. But the tables turned. Babylon crushed Egypt. They went from a first world power to a second rate power, Egypt did. Assyria was pretty much gone at that point. The, the capital of Nineveh, as we looked at the book of Nahum uh, two years ago now, um, that was that judgment. It was completely wiped out. And so uh, Egypt thought they would easily defeat them, and instead they were the ones who were defeated. And so um, at that moment, Babylon, or the Chaldeans, became, Nebuchadnezzar became the ruling empire in the Middle East. And from that time forward, their cruel reputation preceded them, and everyone knew about 
Babylon. Now, shortly after that battle, Nebuchadnezzar then attacked the kingdom of Judah, and he began to take captives from Jerusalem north to what would be modern-day Iraq, Babylon, Iraq. And so, essentially, eventually, Jerusalem was destroyed, and then all of Judah was taken captive in 586 B.C., so just within about 20, 25 years. So all that Habakkuk prophesied that we're about to read, everything that he wrote took place within 20, 25 years of him writing it. A lot of scholars believe that he wasn't there on the scene. He may have died at that initial invasion. We don't know. But he foresaw it, and then all of it came true within just a short generation. Now, he uh, was most likely a contemporary with King Josiah or possibly King Jehoiakim. Um, so that's kind, of the, that's kind of the when. That's when it was written. Let's look at the where. Where did he write it from or who did he write it to? Um, Habakkuk was a contemporary, a, a, an older contemporary, though, of, of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And he wrote his prophecy specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah. It's about the southern kingdom, and it's to the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember the Assyrians about 100 plus years earlier, 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire had come in and dissolved the 10 northern tribes of Israel. They were basically gone. And yet miraculously, even though they had been sinning and God had warned them through Amos and Isaiah and Hezekiah, uh, he had warned them things are coming, be ready. Um, They really didn't repent. And so they were essentially um, destroyed. Well, miraculously, Judah was not. And so Judah kind of developed this pride. Hey, we, we didn't get taken out with this initial invasion, so we're good. And so the people began to rest uh, and, and think, well, we're content, we're good. Uh, God understands. And yet, even under the reforms of King Josiah, a little bit of spiritual reform, the people then began to backslide. And so eventually Josiah dies in battle. Ironically, he dies from um, basically that same time period of Carchemish. And then a wicked, despicable king, Jehoiakim, becomes the new king. Uh, So that was about the the where, kind of where he's writing to. But what about the what? What is the book of Habakkuk about? To break it down, let me give you the three-chapter kind of breakdown on the screen. Um, Habakkuk is a book where we open it up, and he's kind of protesting. There's protest. I don't understand. But then chapter 2 is perspective. There's a new perspective of God's work. And then thirdly, it ends with praise, chapter 3. There's protest at God's perplexing ways. And yet, as God answers Habakkuk's questions, he now has a new perspective. And this leads him to an overwhelming moment of worship and praise. And he resolves to rest content with God's work. One person said this, Habakkuk's book begins with sobbing and it ends with singing. Doesn't that describe a lot of your trials, our trials that we deal with? We go into them wondering with, with tears, Lord, why am I going through this? This doesn't make sense. And we lose something and we lose a loved one and we're weeping and we're crying and we have fears and concerns. And yet, knowing God's going to do something, he's at work. We don't understand it at the beginning, but then at the end, we look back and say, oh, I get it now. Or Lord, you're still worthy. You're still holy. You're still good and gracious. And so Habakkuk addresses some of these things. Now, what about the why? Why did he write this prophecy? This is kind of a two-part question. The first part is why. Why did he write this? 
the reason he wrote this is because he was a man of righteous standing. He was a good and righteous man. And he was looking out at the world around him, specifically Israel, Judah. He's looking around at God's people. And he begins to look around and he's like, I don't understand why God's not intervening when there's so much sin and corruption and wickedness that's happening within the people of God. And it seems like with all this corruption, God would act. And I don't understand why he's not acting. Even with the religious reforms that the king had put in place, they had torn down the high places, they had ripped down the idols, and they had kind of brought about this return to the law, the reading of the scripture, the reading of the law. But it was rarely being uh, feared or executed. Everyone just kind of still did what was right in their own eyes. And seeing what God did in judgment to the ten northern tribes, Habakkuk says, it's going to be our turn eventually. We get a little bit of a glimpse of insight of what was happening by looking at 2 Kings 17. Look at this on the screen. It says, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. That's kind of funny to think about. You did something secretly against a God who is omniscient, who's all-knowing and all-seeing. There's not a lot you're going to get away with. Uh, John MacArthur says this about Habakkuk's time period. He says, what a situation. Sin, immorality, vice were rampant. Those in government were slack and indolent. And those who applied the law applied it dishonestly, and justice was nowhere to be found. And Habakkuk, a man of God, has had his heart just bleeding before God as to why God allows this. Such were the conditions of Israel. There was lawlessness, there was sin, immorality, and so forth. And then he says this, the same thing is true today. Hmm. See, this brings us to the second part of this why question. Why are we studying an Old Testament minor prophet book at Shoreline Church in 2019? Why? Well, I think there's four reasons why, and I want you to jot these down. Four reasons why we're going to study this together. And guys, I believe this is an incredibly timely study. It's always a timely study as we go verse by verse. It's not like we sit down and try to strategize and plan verses that will go along with current culture. God just seems to do that. It's amazing. Uh, but here are four important lessons that we learn. Number one, we're going to learn in this book that God's ways are not our ways. We're going to look at that specifically today, and then in our last study on Father's Day, we'll look at that. God's ways are not our ways. God does not have to answer to us. He does, so to speak, according to the Bible, whatever he pleases. So his plans cannot be thwarted, and they cannot be obscured. And he can use whatever instrument he wants to use in our life to bring about conformity to his will. He can do that uh, without apology or without explanation. Uh, sometimes in our life, the instrument that he uses is not one that we select, is it? It could be a random sickness that hits you out of nowhere, and now it's debilitating. Sometimes we lose a job unexpectedly, and we go, Lord, I didn't see that coming. Other times, uh, we find ourselves thrown into a situation where nothing could have prepared us for what we were about to face, right? But we find ourselves thrown into that situation so that we will rely on God himself. 
And we're unqualified, we're unprepared for what he throws our way. But then we find ourselves uh, clinging to his faithfulness. And behind it all, we can either struggle against God's plan or we can submit to it. We can dismiss him, we can ignore him, we can make believe that he's not there. But none of that attitude, none of that posture affects the truth of his existence and none of it robs him of his sovereign power on earth or in our lives. So trying to understand his ways doesn't benefit us at all. Let me just try to figure him out. That's like trying to explain how your car works to your three-year-old. You ever tried to do that? Daddy, why does the car, how does the car work? Well, son, let me explain the spark plug and the catalytic converter. And you try to do that, and the little boy only knows that you put the key in, you turn it, and the car runs. And that's enough for him. And so in our lives, we try to figure out all that God's doing behind the scenes when all we have to do is sit back and trust him. Just submit to him and believe that he's good. Now, secondly, we're going to learn in this series that trust, number two, must be developed. Trust must be developed. We're going to see Habakkuk actually grow in his faith in just three short chapters. He's going to grow. He comes to God initially with a question. But listen, the answer is far more scary than anything he imagined. He thought the answer was going to be straightforward. And he goes, wait, that's the answer? It seems like the solution is worse than the problem, Lord, are you sure? And yet, at the end of the prophecy, we find him completely at peace with God's answer. And we're going to learn, even today, the rhythms that our faith takes, the the cycles that we go through. And we'll kind of see and identify where we're at today in that faith journey, so to speak, and how we can move to greater maturity. So we're going to see it needs to be developed. Uh, Number three, we're going to learn, maybe most importantly, that you and I are justified by faith alone. Chapter 2, verse 4 has the unique distinction. You can circle that at some point during the study. But it has the unique distinction of being quoted three times in the New Testament. In Romans, in Galatians, and in the book of Hebrews, uh, we see this text, Habakkuk 2.4. In fact, Romans 1.17 was the verse that helped um, really shape the ministry of Martin Luther. Uh, he heard it when he was sick, and then he heard it when he was ascending the steps uh, of Pilate there in Rome. And during that climb of those steps, he heard that verse again, the just shall live by faith. And he stood up and said, what am I doing? He returned back uh, to Germany. And you could say the Protestant Reformation was birthed out of Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. We're going to learn in this series what it means to be right with God and to stand before him justified and how that's attained simply by faith apart from works. If you want to be right with God this morning, you simply repent and believe. So we're going to learn that, and it's going to be awesome. But finally, number four, we're going to learn that we can rejoice in God no matter what our outward circumstances may be. Whatever we deal with, whether we abound or abase, whether our world is falling apart or it's falling into place, we can still praise God because no matter what happens in our lives, nothing can change the truth that God is good and his love endures forever. That he is good, you just said it, all the time and all the time he is good. Nothing will change that. Our outward circumstances, our inward disposition, nothing will change that. The fact that he is good and his love endures forever. So are you guys excited to study this? I'm pumped. So let's dive in this morning and look at our outline for the first 11 verses. The title of the sermon today is The Wonder of God's Ways. 
And we're going to look at how God's ways are, verses 1 and 2, mysterious. They're mysterious. They're misunderstood, verses 3 and 4. And that's kind of Habakkuk's question. But then God's response in verse 5 and through 11. We're going to see that God's ways are marvelous, but not the way you're thinking. Better and deeper than the way you're thinking. And then God's ways are, of course, moral. So with that as a template, let's dive into verse 1. Look at it with me. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Okay, And then he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Note that word oracle. The word oracle can be translated burden. Some of your Bibles actually say burden. Uh, It was a word from the Lord, and it was something that bore weight and bore significance. It was something heavy that needed to be shared. Notice that Habakkuk was not speaking just for God, but speaking to him. And his question is, oh Lord, how long? And, And this is the same question uttered throughout the Bible by Jeremiah. It was uttered by Zechariah. It was uttered by the psalmist on multiple occasions. Lord, how long? Uh, it was asked in Romans, or Revelation chapter 6 as the martyrs who died for their faith said, Lord, how long? How long are you going to put up with this violence, this injustice? Do you not see corruption happening among your people? How long, Lord? As we said earlier, Habakkuk lived during the time of King Josiah who had brought about many religious reforms into Um, the uh, nation of Israel. There was a return, at least publicly, to a reverence for the law of God. And much of the leadership in the nation was leading by example, but that didn't mean every single person was embracing it. As you well know, we cannot legislate the human heart. We can do all that we can to have good legislation and good laws in place, but that does nothing to impact, ultimately, the human heart. We can pass all sorts of state laws Uh, and bills that restrict abortion. But if you're paying attention to the national conversation right now, people are infuriated. The secularist, humanist, postmodern culture is infuriated by this attempt. Uh, And that's ultimately because no matter how many political or legal reforms are passed, you cannot reform the human heart in that way, right? Politics may conform people but they don't transform people. Only the Holy Spirit can bring about regeneration and spiritual renewal, amen? And so the people in Habakkuk's day may have done away with the outward idols, but they were still sinning. They're still living lives of compromise. And Habakkuk's like, okay, Lord, when? When are you gonna do something about this? Are you just lazy? Are you slack? What is going on? Why is judgment not beginning in your house? Uh, Today, in a like way, I ask the Lord many times, and it's not in an accusatory way, but it's in a genuine, Lord, how long? Like, Lord, how long before you judge the prosperity hacks, the false teachers, the deceivers, the wolves in sheep clothing? Lord, how long? How long until this skin-deep, superficial churchianity movement is going to be judged by you? And we'll get back to authentic Christian faith. Lord, how long until biblical Christianity is embraced once again? Lord, how long uh, do we have to wait to see revival? And if you don't like that word, spiritual renewal, a return to the simplicity of Jesus and the scriptures and holiness. Lord, how long do we have to wait to see that? Uh, You know what the answer is, church? You know what the answer is? God's ways are mysterious. That's the answer. His ways are mysterious. His timing is perfect. (laughs) 
Though you and I would love to be his consultants, wouldn't we? Like, Lord, I don't know if you realize, but it's about time. It's time for that, that pay increase to happen. Lord, it's time for my son to receive Christ. I don't know, it's, it's, been, it's been time. Right? I've gone through this trial enough. It's time, Lord. And we love to be his consultants. And yet God, his ways are higher than our ways. He doesn't operate on our timetable. Cloaked in sovereign mystery, God in his patient forbearance does not treat us as our sins deserve, does he? And sometimes his judgment seems to be delayed. And we can't explain it, but we can rest that he is still absolutely in control. We can rest in that. Now, because his ways are mysterious, that brings us to our second point. That means his ways are often, secondly, misunderstood. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is him continuing his question. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Wow. In verse 3, Habakkuk asked God, why have you allowed three sets of things? I don't know if you saw them in verse 3, but there's three kind of couplets. First of all, he says, why are you allowing me to see two things, iniquity and wrong? And then he mentions destruction and violence. And then he mentions strife and contention. So when he first says iniquity and wrong, this is often translated in the idea of perverted justice and social oppression. It's when sin is being done by one person to another. And then he says destruction and violence. And this is typically associated with the unjust oppression of the weaker members of a society. Uh, when you come against a minority group and you go, we're going to take advantage of this small and kind of isolated group. And, and they're not powerful, they're weak, so we're going to come against them. Violence and destruction. And then the third group, strife and contention, may mean disagreements and even legal action that was happening within God's people. They were taking out lawsuits on one another. They were, they were bringing each other to court. They were trying to use the law uh, out of context. And so in verse 4, his assessment notice with me, is that the law is paralyzed. It's made of no effect. He says justice has been actually perverted. You guys know the definition of perversion. Perversion is when you take something intended for good, and yet you misuse it in a way that it was not intended. Sex is a good example of that. God did not, you know, when he created Adam and Eve, say, what are you guys doing? What is going on here? God created man and woman, and sex is a beautiful part of God's creation. It's not something he's surprised by, right? So sex is good. It's in marriage a beautiful thing, and yet what, have, what has men, mankind done? They've perverted it. We've perverted sex to where now it's deviant and it's sinful when it's outside of the context of marriage, and so they had done that according to Habakkuk, um, they had taken God's law and perverted it. Uh, they had perverted justice. So even though they had God's laws, they weren't keeping his law. And the best law in the world isn't really helpful or profitable if no one's abiding by it. So what's going on? We have a corrupt people that are sinning against one another. And they're taking advantage of one another. Uh, there's, there's rampant strife and contention and violence. And Yet Habakkuk completely misunderstands the plan of God. In verse 4, he believes that God's law is paralyzed and that judgment delayed equals judgment denied. That is a misunderstanding. He is wrong. 
And I believe in the same way, it's very easy for us to look at the work of God, the, the ways that God works, and to misunderstand his ways. We do this a lot. Let me give you a few examples. These are ways that we misunderstand God's um, plan. We misunderstand, first of all, his patience for his approval. Today, if you're sinning and you're walking in unrepentant sin, there's a temptation because you've been walking in unrepentant sin to begin to believe that God is okay with what you're doing and he's not. And so you misunderstand his patience for his approval. Or we misunderstand his grace as a license. Well, see, God gave me grace, so I'm free to sin. No, 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 you're free not to sin. Sin does not mean that now more grace will abound. Paul says in Romans, that is silly. That is the dumbest thing he's ever heard. By no means will we sin and then grace, more grace abound. We're not to go into our sinful ways of doing what we read earlier. First John 1, 9, we go, well, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me, so I'm just going to sin. No, that's an after you sin verse, not a before you sin verse, okay? So we have to be careful we don't misunderstand grace as a license. Or we misunderstand his discipline as disapproval. I know I've been there. Like, Lord, why, why am I going through this? Are you angry with me? The disciples said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus is like, no one sinned. This is so that the work of God would be displayed in his life. Sometimes we misunderstand God's discipline and we think God's mad at me. And, and it could be the case that it's wrath, but listen, God disciplines those sons that he loves. And when I love my children, I discipline them. So if you're being disciplined by the Lord, it's because he loves you. He's bringing about greater fruit in your life. Well, finally, and it's not final, we misunderstand a lot more than this, but for today, we misunderstand his wrath sometimes as unjust. God, how can you have wrath on a people? That's not just, that's not fair. And we'll look more about that next week. Well, nothing could have prepared Habakkuk for God's response, nothing. Let's see how God's ways are marvelous in verse five. Here's his response. God says to Habakkuk in verse five, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. You've heard that phrase, uh, you know, it's too good to be true, or I can't believe the good news. Well, this is almost like it's too good to be true, it's too bad to be true. This is a, this is a crazy answer. Notice with me, first though, that God doesn't argue with Habakkuk. He doesn't argue about the sinful condition of Judah. His analysis as a prophet is sound. That, that's how things are going. What God does say is, hey, open your eyes and look out. Look out among all the nations, and I want you to observe something, and I want you to prepare yourself. Why? Because you're about to be astounded. I'm going to do something so profound that even if I told you, you wouldn't be able to comprehend it. Now, I, I just want to do a little time out here real quick and talk about the elephant in the room with verse 5. Can we do this for a minute? I've been guilty of this. Don't be that guy, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Habakkuk 1.5 by itself is not an out-of-context Bible quote to put on Instagram. I know you've done it. You've got the really cool edgy background, and you've got it in really cool script or really edgy font. If you've got the tattoo of Habakkuk 1.5, there are tattoo removal places, okay? I'll help pay for the fee, all right? We'll, we'll get this done. Because listen, Habakkuk 1.5 is not saying this is going to be wonderful. This is going to be wonderful. You know what he's actually saying? He's saying this is going to bring wonder. And not the good kind of wonder. 
This is not God saying, be astounded at the unbelievably good things coming your way. But rather, be astounded at the news that I am about to drop because it's going to be awful. I wonder how often we do this with Scripture. We just kind of take a verse and we cut off and disconnect it from the prior and the following verse, and we yank it out, and then we prop it in somewhere. You know, we hate when politicians do that, when they take a little soundbite, or someone takes a, a little thing that was said and misquotes it. Don't we hate that? Why do we do that with the Bible? Like, this verse is used and misused often. You know what else is misused? Probably the most. Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, can I harp on this for a minute? Hey, I've done it too, I've quoted it, but let me just give this little background. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, can we have some fun with us today? All right, don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not mad, I'm just having fun. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, leave that up there. Is it true that God has and knows the plans for us, that he, he knows plans that he's got? Yes, he is sovereign and he does have a plan that he's intimate with. Is it true that he only wants to give us prosperity and, and wealth and help and that everything that we pray and everything that we do will magically come true, that no evil will ever uh, become of us. Uh, well, if you mean by prosper to be conformed into the image of Christ no matter what obstacle is thrown in my way and I'm going to prosper by becoming more like Jesus even in my suffering, then maybe I understand that. If my entire life is lived solely dia gloria, to the glory of God alone, then, yeah, you can take everything from me, and I'm still going to keep my eyes on him. And so if he has the plans for me in that way, then, yeah, okay. But listen, if you cookie cut this verse and say, okay, because I'm not going to lose my house, and my grandparents aren't going to die, and my kids will come to faith because God knows the plans he has for me, then we're misusing this verse. We're totally misunderstanding it. You see, in context... They're speaking, this verse is speaking to way more than our personal comfort here in the 21st century. Uh, this was written in the book of Jeremiah, and we have to zoom out from 2911 to the whole book to get a picture. Just like if you're on Google Maps and you don't know where you're at, you've got to pinch out. You've got to zoom out and say, oh, okay, I didn't realize that I was in Tennessee right now. That makes sense. Now I've got to fix, fix the map, right? And so we have to zoom out from Jeremiah 29 11 and look at the whole book. Jeremiah was written to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Years after Habakkuk wrote this and warned them, this is coming. Now Jeremiah writes to them and says, hey, you've been taken captive. You've been taken from your home. And now you're in a place not familiar. You're in a place where you're kind of like a slave. You're a captive. You're an exile. And so you know what? Instead of seeking to fight against the city and make your way back to Jerusalem, you need to just settle down and, and build vineyards and, and hang out and build homes and have children and just relax and seek the welfare of the city. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. That's the context. It's not written for just throw it in any scenario. No, it's written specifically to exiles to seek God and not to run away from his plan in the midst of their difficulty. So church, keep it in context, all right? That's my soapbox. Now, I like in verse 5 that God, listen, gives revelation, but he doesn't give explanation. Listen, God's ways are marvelous. What do I mean by that? They invoke marvel. 
Sometimes we're in awe at how he orchestrates a situation to draw us closer to himself. Other times we marvel, like maybe me more than I should. I just marvel that God still loves me, that he forgives me even though I'm prone to wander. I often wonder, like, God, how can you be so good to so wretched a sinner as me? There's wonder in a good way, but there's also wonder in a confusing way, in a perplexing way. God's ways may invoke marvel at how this difficulty is part of his plan. What does this have to do with anything, Lord? I don't get it. We ask, Lord, why did you allow this? I thought I was your child. I thought you loved me. I'm a good person, Lord. (laughs) But instead of asking, why do bad things happen to good people? A better question is, why do good things happen to bad people? God doesn't owe us an explanation. His ways are marvelous. They invoke marvel. Sometimes they seem to be more difficult than we would expect, and they're beyond comprehension. Now, the news that Habakkuk um, would be astounded by is found in our next verse. And this brings us to the fourth idea, that God's ways are moral. They're moral. Okay, look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that he calls them a bitter and hasty nation. Uh, They carried with them this bitterness, this rage, and they were hasty. They moved quickly. In 20 short years, they came out of nowhere uh, to power. And then he says, the rest of verse 6, they marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Sounds like Israel. They, they're going around the earth, and they're taking possession of places that really weren't theirs originally. And, and yet Babylon has the same attitude. Number, uh, verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. And their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And so their reputation precedes them. They're to be dreaded and feared. Uh, Verse 8 mentions their cavalry. It says their horses are swifter than leopards. So they had some fast horses. They were more fierce than the evening wolves. They're scary. The ones riding them, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. This would have been a a daunting enemy. In in other words, their technology is more advanced than Israel's. They've got a huge cavalry that would overwhelm an army. Verse 9 says that they all united, they all come uh, for violence. They're not there to seek a peace treaty, they're there for violence. That's an interesting word. We'll come back to that. And all their faces are forward. They're united in this effort. They gather captives like sand. It's like nothing. Just scoop them up and they've got an untold amount of captives. And then verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. There's no one who can come against them, not even Egyptian, uh, Pharaoh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. They were able to build ramparts and easily uh, take over any defense. And then verse 11 says, then they sweep by like the wind they go on to the next enemy, and they're guilty men whose might is their, whose own might is their God. What is God saying here? He's saying, listen, he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as the instrument of judgment against his own people. Do you guys smell the irony here? God's people were becoming violent, and yet they're about to be judged by a people so violent that when Babylon subdued a people, often they would cut off people's feet, their lips, their noses, they would blind people, they would gut them, they would tear out their hearts of the victims that they uh, fought against. The Babylonians were vicious and violent, and that was the solution to the violence within God's people. Uh, Known for their cavalry, they'd come swiftly and decisively. Prideful, they would not be intimidated by any king. 
You could put up any defense, they would defeat it. They had autonomy and they had contempt for authority and that made them dangerous and it made them decisive against Assyria and Egypt and eventually Israel. And as verse 11 states, these men were guilty and they did not worship Almighty God. They worshiped their own might. They were immoral. They were corrupt. They were deplorably evil. And yet God was allowing them to come in and conquer the known world at that time so that they would be the instrument that would bring judgment upon God's people. Does that seem fair? Does that seem right? This caused Habakkuk to question God's integrity. Wait a minute, God, hold on. I mean, this can't be right. I mean, imagine we get a bunch of pastors together nationally and we begin to pray for God to work among his people. And God's answer is, I'm going to bring some Islamic uh, you know, terrorists to take over and, and fight against the church. Does that seem right? That seems like, well, that's not the right response, Lord. The solution seems worse than the problem. How can this be your agent to purify your people? And we're going to unpack that idea a little bit more next week, but we can rest today in the truth that God's ways are higher than our ways, and they're moral. They're good, even when we don't understand them. God was still going to judge Babylon for her sinfulness, but at the end of the day, God doesn't owe Habakkuk or his people an explanation of why he's working the way he's working. In our lives, we often follow God when it's confusing. And trust is a cycle that we develop. And I just want to show you this for a minute. There's, a, there's kind of a, a graph. I didn't come up with this, but this is kind of a picture that shows our journey of faith. And I just want to walk you guys through this uh, just for a minute. Okay? We start at the bottom point down here. Looks like a roller coaster, doesn't it? You're like, yep, that's my life right there. In fact, that graph is my marriage, or that is my child raising, or that is my job, whatever. It's our faith life, our life of trust. Down at the bottom left, we start our relationship with God by faith. So we begin this journey, and then we begin to grow. We begin to see God's faithfulness, and we learn more about him. We begin to add to our faith knowledge and goodness and faithfulness. We begin to see his faithfulness in our life. And we begin to grow and develop faith. But then eventually there comes a point where we kind of hit a mountaintop. We go, it can't get any better than this. And then we come to the crisis of belief. The crisis of belief is that moment when what we know is true about God at that time is challenged. It's challenged by circumstances. It's challenged by outward things. And in that moment, in that crisis of belief moment, we have an an option. We can do three different things. The first thing is we can curse God and just go back to not following him. I just don't want to know you anymore. I thought that you were good and you allowed this situation in my life. So then we, we depart from God, we curse God. The second thing is that just we ignore the crisis of belief. We go, nah, I'm just going to keep working. I'm just going to ignore it. There is no crisis of belief. And, and what ends up happening is you fall away anyway. But then the third response is that we embrace the dip. Okay, you see the dip? See that little dip? That's what we call the dreaded dip. In that moment, we decide, I'm going to trust the Lord and I'm going to embrace the truth that my faith was rested upon, and that's God, and, and I'm going to do that, or I'm going to embrace my circumstances and, or even myself. Do you guys follow me? In the dip, we either say, okay, I don't see God working. This seems difficult. I'm not sure about this. This crisis is leading to this problem. And I'm either going to fall away or I'm going to cling to him. And when we cling to him, when we embrace him, when we hold fast to him, we begin to see him proving faithful. 
and we begin to go up again in our development of faith and we begin to trust him more. And then we can look back and say, wow, God, you're so faithful. I can't believe you worked on my behalf in that way. And then we go up to the next mountaintop experience. You guys see the trough? Do you guys experience that in your life? My family and I just went through the dip financially. And we've seen God faithfully take care of some issues that we never thought he'd take care of. And we're amazed at his goodness and his faithfulness. So we're in that, we're kind of coming out of that and seeing his faithful hand. Habakkuk comes to a moment where what he believes about God's ways is challenged. And here's the crazy thing. Ironically, God works more in the dip than on the mountaintop. He shows himself faithful as a person we can trust and cling to. So when we don't fall away and shrink back, but hold fast to him, we see his faithfulness. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to see how Habakkuk's trust matures and how our own faith can mature as well. Now, before we close, I want to apply verses 1 through 11 uh, in two ways. So I want you to jot these down. Application. First of all, we will either embrace the lies or the character of God. Remember, Habakkuk's name means wrestle. It also means to embrace. Is he going to embrace the truth about God or is he going to wrestle with God and believe the lie? And the same question is now presented to each one of us here this morning. You know, I'm just going to speak to you specifically. You know that God is good. You know that God is sovereign. You know that God is faithful. You know that God loves you. So why do you have cancer? You know that God is good. You know that his ways are higher than our ways. Why did you lose your baby? Why haven't all of your adult sons come to faith? See, in these trying moments, we can choose to either mistrust the goodness of God and say, because my situation is bad, God is bad. Or we can say like Job, though he slay me, I will yet hope in him. I think about Jesus on the cross as he bore the weight of humanity's sin, knowing that it was the Father's plan from the foundation of the world, and it pleased him to crush his very son. In that moment, what Satan meant for evil, God was intending for good. Think of all the suffering endured by Joseph. I think it was put into proper perspective when he came to understand the full plan of God. Many people have not heard of the name David Flood, but David Flood and his wife, moved to, at that time, uh, what was called the Belgian Congo in Africa. And they became missionaries with another couple to uh, try to reach a specific tribe. And, and years and years of faithful ministry and missions ministry didn't yield anything, except a little boy would be a courier back and forth from the tribe. And eventually that little boy came to saving faith. And the, the chief would not allow any outsiders in. But this little boy kept going in. And they kept praying that this little boy would have the boldness to share the gospel, but he didn't. And eventually, the other couple contracted malaria and they left the field. Well, in the next few years, David's wife, Sevilla, they're from Sweden, she ended up contracting malaria and she was pregnant. She gave birth and then she died about two days later. Devastated, David looked at God and said, God, you've ruined my life. And so he gave his child to another missionary couple and he flew home completely dejected. He said, God has taken everything from me. I hate God, I curse him got remarried, began to drink, and kind of squandered his life away. Well, that little girl that was born to uh, David and his wife, uh, to the missionary couple, eventually they moved to America, and she grew up. Her name is Aggie, 
And one day, randomly, she picks up this Swedish magazine and she sees in this magazine uh, a little white cross. And there's a name on the white cross, Sevilla Flood. And she goes, that's my mom's name. And so she brings it to the library, to a university, finds someone who can translate and the article and realizes that her parents were there. So she finds her dad. She ends up going to Sweden. She connects with her family. He has adult children with his new wife. She connects with them and she says, I want to share with my dad all the goodness of God. And his, her, her uh, you know, extended family said, no, 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 you can't say anything about God. Your father hates God. He wants nothing to do with him. And yet she goes in and as soon as he sees her, he begins to weep. And she says, Papa, I want to tell you about the goodness of God. And he stops crying and he turns in rage and he says, I don't want to ever hear that name again. I hate God. I've cursed God. I want nothing to do with him. He ruined my life. And she says, Papa, I want to tell you something. That little boy that you shared the gospel with eventually had the boldness and he shared with the tribe. And Papa, today 600 of those tribal members have received Christ and they're walking with God and there's a, a powerful, viable church that's there. Papa, your sacrifice, Mama's sacrifice was not in vain. And he began to weep and by the end of the day he had given his life back to Christ and he died two weeks later uh, to be in the presence of Jesus. You see, what we see on this side of eternity doesn't always make sense. We look at life and circumstances and we can either embrace the lies or we can embrace the character of God. Secondly, as we apply this, we will either lean on our own understanding or we'll lean on his sovereign ways. Many of us can quote that verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what's the next part? And lean not on your own understanding. We all have the lean, all right? We're leaning on our own understanding. We're leaning on our parents. We're leaning on our education. We're leaning on our upbringing. We're leaning on our moral outward goodness. But listen, we're either going to lean on our own understanding or we're going to abandon it in our wisdom and we're going to trust the Lord fully. And today I want to challenge you not to lean on anything except the Lord Jesus. You can jot this verse down later, we're out of time, but Romans 4, uh, Paul mentions Abraham. Romans 4, 20 through 25. Look it up later, we don't have time to go into it today, but he talks about how Abraham didn't waver in unbelief. He trusted God. Habakkuk, in the same way, could have leaned on his own understanding, but by the time his prophecy's over, we're going to see him leaning on God, no matter if everything else in his life fails him. And you and I will do the same. We'll either lean on our own understanding or we lean on God's sovereign goodness. As we close this morning, we can confess that his ways are higher than our ways. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.